0: hi everyone duncan fletcher here back for another session of the pads athlete development podcast series our guest today is currently the director of student athlete mental health at louisiana state university she spent six years in lsu's office of multicultural affairs and was a coordinator of the lsu african-american cultural center In her private practice, she works with a broad range of clinical experiences ranging from athletes to working professionals, couples, and families. She has worked closely with numerous teams and athletes from the NBA, the NFL, and Team USA. Today, we have a very wide-ranging and interesting conversation that touches on a range of issues pertaining to mental health. We address the experiences of both student athletes and major professional athletes and discuss the similarities and differences between these two populations. It's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Lakitha Poole. Hi everyone, Duncan Fletcher here. We're here on another Athlete Development Summit podcast series adventure. We've got an excellent guest with us today. Before we jump over to that, I want to say hello to my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. Stephanie, how are you doing today?
1: Doing well. Really, um, I don't know the word's excited, but I'm I'm very pleased that we're going to be discussing this topic today. I think it's something that is crucial and critical, especially at this time. So looking forward to this discussion.
0: Could not agree with you more. Uh, We're very fortunate today to have Louisiana State University's Director of Student-Athlete Mental Health, Dr. Lakeitha Poole with us today. Dr. Poole, welcome to the Summit Podcast Series.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation too.
0: Well, I think uh, you're a perfect uh, guest for us because it's kind of cool. You work both with major professional athletes as well as student athletes. And I think you have a very unique perspective that hopefully we can learn a lot from. So I guess right out of the gate, the first question I'm going to hit you with is having been exposed exposed to both populations of professional and student athletes, with respect to their mental health, what would you say are the similarities, and perhaps maybe what the differences are differences are between the two populations? Yeah,
2: I definitely think that there are tons of of overlap or, or similarities between uh, those different sort of uh, we would call them spaces, right? Collegiate space versus like professional space versus even youth sports, which doesn't they don't necessarily get a lot of highlights either. But um, you know, the the overlap really entails being able to think about performance is always at the forefront for athletes in general, thinking about how to be the best, how to win, how to You know, meet whatever next goals, um, win championships, all of those things. Um, So mentally, from from sort of a a a mental perspective of like preparation and training, um, there's a lot of similarities. Just because the goal is to be the best to win, Um, but when it comes to how that happens, I think you see some differences just based on you know age um, and exposure. And so that that collegiate group, eighteen to twenty five. Um, in general, college students as a whole, whether they're athletes or not, that is the time, um, where for any of us, if sort of underlying mental health concerns, hereditary mental health concerns, we see an emergence of those. And so that creates a unique space, um, during a time where you're already, you know, trying to just adjust to autonomy and independence and, um, living in a new place maybe, and then also having this underlying sort of, um concept of, of mental health being able to maybe influence how your experience goes and so of course then that does affect how you might show up on the field in the pool on the court um and and that looks a little different than in the pro space um there's a lot more independence and autonomy in the sense of just sort of even self-identity of being able to have established maybe a career already in sport because of the college space um as a, as a usually a pipeline into the pro space. Um, and then being able to now know that your career kind of is all a little bit more on you, um, whereas there is much more of a team dynamic concept uh, in the collegiate space because you're not only representing that team or that sport you're a part of, but a university. And so there's this layer of, you know, wearing the letters on your chest and the colors and that sort of thing. Whereas in the pro space, um, there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of fan, you know, support and that sort of thing. But it's still super independent which changes uh, mentally how you prep, how you achieve, how you define success. Um, and that can weigh on people in different ways, for sure. But as far as mental health as a whole, you see a bunch of different things there that that kind of across the spectrum, regardless of age, that, that stays with athletes.
0: Out of curiosity, when you look at, say, the professional group, and obviously it's your livelihood, there's a lot of scrutiny from the media, fans and whatnot. And then you also have the dollars involved from your experience, do you think that there's more pressure perceived by those athletes than, say, maybe the individual playing for their, you know, playing for their colors or playing for the university? I'm curious as to what uh, your your perspective is on that. I think
2: the pressures are are just really quite different. Um, I, would, I wouldn't want to say one is more or less. Um, I think it's quite different for many of the reasons, like you said. So, you know, in the pro space, um, it's your bread and butter. It's it's sort of just your livelihood. It's the way in which you, you feed your family. It's the way in which you put a roof over your head uh, directly. And so in that sense, there's the pressure, obviously, just to make sure that you're doing what's necessary in order to, to make sure you have a paycheck every month or however often you get paid. Um, whereas in the collegiate space, you have um, you know, some other things tied into it, including academics, which is, you know, there might be a goal for that athlete to get a degree. That might be really, in a lot of cases, you, you'll hear stories, um, or we do as clinicians of someone, you know, being a college athlete because they need, this is the only way they can pay for college. And that then for them is the next stepping stone to a life that has nothing to do with sports sometimes. And so, um, I think they're, they're different pressures, um, to that extent. Uh, I do think though, you know, the, the pro space has, um, a level of exposure to fandom that from a mental health perspective, too, that can weigh. And I'm laughing because like I just think fans are wild, um, you know, but I think being able to recognize that there's always this sort of pressure to uh, have your fan base rooting for you, you know, rooting to support you, buying tickets because there's a business, there's a heavy business component to sport as well, and, and you want to be the team that sells out you know, the arena. You want to be the team that has the most fans in the space so that you can be the loudest. And so while that also happens in the collegiate space, um, I feel like the, the business boom part of it adds a layer of pressure that looks a little bit different because um, college athletics would happen, I think, with or without the fans there. We saw that these last few years um, because of COVID and things like that. Those things would happen. Whereas pro space if if there is if there's no sport it shuts down there's not necessarily like a, a reason to sort of do it because it's more entertainment based so um looks a little different I, I, that's how I say it. I wouldn't rate them I think they're just very very different
0: that's uh yeah, that's interesting to hear that perspective for sure and, and I was going to ask you too kind of in that same vein and looking at the differences between the two groups, although you know like you said they're similar I'm just curious when you look at say, social media, which I think there's, you know, we're going to dive right into that right away. Is social media the problem, right? Let's get into that conversation right out of the gate. But I'm curious as to the perspective you have on, say, student athletes utilizing social media and the, you know, the stress and, you know, or what that creates from a mental wellness perspective versus, say, a professional athlete, uh, which, again, may have a different, you know, impetus for wanting to engage in that environment. I'm just curious what you've seen in that regard.
2: Yeah, I think for the collegiate space, for sure, social media is it's huge because it's also utilized um, in the promotion of sport so much. So I think student athletes buy into the fact that they have to become sort of a brand in order to be considered maybe to take their skills to the next level now. And so it's like, you almost have to be fully immersed in social media um, in order to feel like you've made a name for yourself. If your goal is to maybe take your skills to the, to the next stage and Um, that's not necessarily the way it always used to be. Um, it was more so if, you know, you got drafted, you got drafted. If you didn't, you didn't. And it was based on your stats. It was based on your film. Um, and now it's sort of like, can you also be turned into maybe, um, a a personality for your team, uh, moving forward? And, And I think that adds a whole other Pressure and layer. We could have a whole other podcast episode about NIL and like the. I was just gonna thing. comment on NIL. If, if
1: that has, have you seen changes due to that? Because you said they're trying to build a brand, be more yep. than just the athlete.
2: Yep, definitely. Um, and 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 the the layers, you know, that that adds around the mental pressures and mental health concerns um, is huge. I think in the collegiate space for sure, because there's this other other job now not just going out and performing your sport but like this job of building you know a name for yourself for your sport um and then having to see you know does that get picked up and does does it become something that goes viral like we all see like this last these last few years I know for sure I've seen the uptick in like teams doing hype videos especially in foot college football like ahead of the weekend of a big game and like Whose team got the most views and, and who could they get to be the background speaker for those things? And, um, you know, and that in itself, I think trickles down to those athletes on those teams to have to think about living up to the hype. Like we call them hype videos, right? Live up to the hype of, of what now they're expected to go out there to do to perform. Um, I think on the pro side, uh, there's still personality. There's still, you know, a lot of, um, opinions about like who's the who's what role on a team and and what you know people will say and, and you sort of get that when you listen to and watch games um you know with commentators and giving their their sort of ideas as well but I think that they have a little bit more freedom to kind of tune out the noise um because it goes back to our earlier you know question about like, it's their bread and butter. And so it's like, I'm going to get out there and play, you know, regardless, you could like me, you could not like me. Um, This is the maximum sort of of the level at which I get to compete. And so um, I'm already here. And I think that that sort of takes a little bit of the pressure off Um, because it's sort of like I've earned my spot and yeah, I want to be the best and I want to perform well. But if I don't, um, I'm not relying on, you know, the thoughts fully uh, of what fans might think or what, you know my 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 marketing and branding people might think because I've already I've already made it and now it's on me to manage my money well or to you know do that sort of thing so it's it's a little different. You know, so
1: you've talked about kind of some of the similarities um, as well as differences from the professional and the collegiate side. And as we started this discussion, we were talking about mental health. And so for those practitioners, those athlete development specialists that are are listening, often they're the ones that foster the relationships with the athletes, the trust, um, that great rapport, and therefore the athletes open up about personal experiences within some of those conversations. Just wondering, what are some cues that can signal an athlete development specialist that this individual needs a higher level of care than they can uh, provide?
2: I think because those folks, like any support staff or or, or or those individuals that get to be around athletes in that way, and and just like you said, they get to know them um, sometimes at a different level than you know somebody in a role like mine, like a clinician who maybe they come see you once a week or once a month or, or something like that. You know, for support, you they usually get to see these folks every day or much more regularly, so you know what their norms are, you know what their baselines are. Uh, whether you realize that or not. And and so you can recognize pretty easily if someone who you know is usually pretty jovial, pretty happy, you know, a good team player, um, an energizer of the group, and if they show up consistently, um, not in that way, you know, it's always okay and appropriate to sort of ask the, the real question and actually wait for the answer of how are you doing, you know, and what's going on or how have you been? Um, and so I think sometimes people sort of make Uh, build up a pressure of feeling like you need to be able to identify if this person has, you know, a severe depressive episode going on or something like that. And it's more so look for the subtle changes, look for the things that Um, you know is not a part of their norm, um, but also how maybe long that goes on. So, you know, we always talk about using things like intensity and frequency as your markers, right? Like, so how, how different is this person now presenting than who you know them to be? And then how long or how often have you seen this behavior that's not their norm? Uh, going on. And I think the the more you can sort of keep that in the back of your mind, those two factors, it makes it a little bit easier for someone who maybe considers themselves like a layperson in the mental health space to try to identify what might be going on, um, much more simple. So I just always encourage people, look for the small things. Don't be afraid to ask you know, how someone is really doing. And then you got to be okay with waiting for the answer. And that answer may not be the, the thing you wanna hear, um, but it, it's their truth. And so then being able to take action based on that, not necessarily saying you have to become a pseudo therapist, but being able to help get them uh, to the support that they need. Which leads me to
1: my second part of the question, but I really like that those two kind of golden nuggets, the frequency and the intensity, You know, for those two things um, to kind of store in the back of your mind to keep in mind. Now, as, as you just started to talk about uh, seeking help for them, Unfortunately, uh, mental health and counseling is still seen as something that um, I don't need, I don't want. How can we break down some of those barriers
2: when individuals are resistant to getting help? I definitely think normalizing mental health in a way that does not um, still fit with probably a little bit of of what it's been stereotyped as for many, many years um, in the sense of Think of a lot of people, even in, in the words, sometimes people interchangeably use the word mental health and mental illness, the words mental health and mental illness um, interchangeably. And in actuality, mental health is a spectrum. Like it's, it's just like our physical health. Like if I wake up with the sniffles one morning, especially here in Louisiana, like pollen is everywhere all the time. And so it's being able to know. Like my my health may be closer to the the more negative or not fully healthy, 100 percent healthy end of my health spectrum, my physical health spectrum. Mental health is the same way with the two ends of that spectrum being mental illness, which is the word people throw out a lot. Um, Instead, when they mean mental health and in the spectrum term, but that mental illness is the negative space when we think about our disorders like depression, anxiety, PTSD. um, And then the opposite of that spectrum is just being resilient and thriving, which I don't know if any of us ever are are fully on that complete cap um, end of our mental health and well-being. Most of us fall somewhere in the middle most days. And so I think being able to just be uh, very clear about normalizing that, educating people about what mental health really is, um, how it's not so different than we want to make it from our physical health, which we tend to always care a little bit more about. And so um, I think the more conversations, even like this one that we're having, um, it helps for people to know that it's okay to say the word mental health. It's okay to say the words mental illness. It's okay um, to, to ask someone you know how they're doing and, and then be ready to, for them to maybe say not great and, and know what to do with that. So I think particularly in the in the sports space, um, you have to be able to sort of make that connection for people with physical health and mental health because in athletics, for sure, across the board, people care about your health. You have We have dietitians, we have athletic trainers, we have physical therapists um, for all those things, and so for whatever reason, mental health. Uh, just doesn't get sort of lumped into that whole sports medicine idea of keeping an athlete healthy and well. And so I think if we can normalize it more by having more conversations, providing education and definitions of what things really are, it makes it much easier to have those conversations and to clear up some of the stereotypes and stigmas that are still out there.
0: Well, it's like you said, I think the the importance of destigmatization is absolutely crucial uh, in order to kind of continue to get the buy-in. And I think the other point that you made, which ties into what you said at the top is, is that if you're not Mentally well, and even if you're a finely tuned physical specimen that's eating like a champ and killing it in the weight room, if mentally you're not where you need to be, performance is just going to be very, very or elite performance. Consistent performance is going to be very difficult to achieve. So, your point's well taken there, and and to that extent, you know, kind of looking at the entire sort of let's call it the elite sports spectrum, where you're talking about D1 athletics, uh, you're talking major professional sports. What are you seeing are the biggest gaps in the mental health resources and services um, that are being offered or, or not being offered to, to, to athletes? Where are you seeing the holes in the service structure from your experience?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, honestly, it's just being able to create the space for, you know, positions like a, a mental health practitioner or even just a mental performance coach to be a part of the mix of of a staff Um, in the collegiate space, you know, if you're maybe not at a a D one, you know, I'm in the SEC, like those are bigger conferences, power five conferences, uh, where they prioritize that a little bit more. And they, they have the boosters and the, and the money to be able to create positions like that. Um, But if I'm in, you know, a D two or a smaller conference, um, school that may not be an option, and so then there's a gap there in services. In the in the need, the need is the same, right? Because the athletes are they're competing to be the best, like we we've been talking about. Um, but if they don't have that person that's a part of uh, their health program or a part of their sports medicine unit, um, there definitely is going to be a deficit there in what care really looks like. And so in the collegiate space, I always when I'm talking to colleagues at other schools, you know, encouraging them to make the connection from their athletic department to whatever their health services are for the university. So most universities at least have like a a counseling center on campus. Um, And so there might be a great opportunity for a clinician that's interested also in working with athletes to be a liaison. And that may not look like having an embedded sports psychology and counseling program um, like some other schools, but that's having at least somebody who could be a go-to resource for your athletes, for your, your coaches and staff to consult with. Um, to be able to address those very specific and unique needs. And it's a way that for a school or, or a department that doesn't have the funding um, to, to do it in a way where it already exists. And so I think we're missing some opportunities there um, for, for schools that are, are trying to figure it out and, and, and no one's like letting them know that that's an option. Um, I will say, though, the NCAA has done a great job in the last at least six to eight years of trying to evolve what that looks like and requiring through best practices, um, that you have identified somebody on your campus that can work specifically with your athletes and has made that a requirement. Um, but now I think it's like, how do you help the schools that they wanna do it and and but they don't know how or they don't know what that looks like? Or maybe their counseling center's already at capacity with the rest of their student population. Ours is, even though, you know, and it's great that we exist actually, but as a campus of, of 30,000 plus students, our health center's always has a wait list. And so thank goodness For our athletes, they have three separate people that they could go to um, and not have to worry about what that looks like. But every school can't do that. And so I think being able to to really, if you want to meet that standard from the NCAA, to think about what other resources might be available and make those connections. I think in the pro space, um, I think the pro space has actually been more progressive in this, um, much sooner um, and quicker. And again, that may be because just of resources. Those industries are multi-million dollar, sometimes billion-dollar industries, Um, and so it's it's easier for you know a league like the NFL and the NBA, which have both um, you know put sanctions in place to have team clinicians, you know, for every single team, and then have that as an available resource, which makes the connection to like our last question of how do you have these conversations sooner. um, It's just a presence, like having somebody who's identified as your team clinician sets the tone to say, oh, mental health is, uh, it's important to this particular um, team culture. And so, you know, that's been something in my experience has been great to see because most teams, um, even if they have a person on staff, you know, it's about utilization. So like having them a part of, you know, team meetings or allowing them to be able, you know, to be have a presence among them. Um, that's been some of my favorite experiences of my career is, is watching a team culture evolve um, because they've allowed somebody into their space that can just come in and, and then have those quote unquote difficult conversations about mental health that nobody else wants to have um, and and do that in a professional way and in a way that's giving them accurate information. And so, I definitely think the pro space has been much more progressive, which. It's been nice to see. Um, you're seeing that again in, in the NBA, WNBA, the NFL, Major League Soccer, um, baseball, Major League Baseball. All of those folks are now in the spaces where they're hiring clinicians who are a part of their permanent staff um, to, to serve the mental health and performance needs of their athletes, which I just think is amazing.
0: Yeah, That's a great point. I mean, you're seeing that. I think the NFL recently you know, mandated that each team had to have at least one uh, mental health professional available to their, their, their staff or, or on the team staff, which is, which is great. And you're starting to see that sort of expand even further. Actually, just kind of an interesting question that hit me as you sort of talked about utilization and engagement. Have you seen in, in your uh, just sort of from general interest, have you seen uh, an increased demand for your services over your career? And And I'm curious as to you know what you think is is driving that. Is that increased destigmatization, or are there other issues that you think are driving the demand for you know for mental wellness service, assuming that you you've actually seen an increase?
2: Yeah, uh, I one hundred percent think we've seen an increase. I think it's from a multitude of reasons, including um the decrease in stigmatization, and you know, particularly knowing that, you are seeing many more collegiate and pro athletes speak out and be very vocal about, you know, why mental health is important to them. Um, and then obviously we've seen even sort of in in the, the bigger parts of the industry of, of mental health and wellness, you know, plat- different platforms, virtual platforms that have now been created that have allowed people the, the uh, option of access being mobile. Like you can, you know, you can have, a counseling session while you're on the road with your team and and so it's access having changed as well that I think has helped with that. Um I I think part of what I've noticed is, you know, there's there's been this this shifting in the in the conversation of like what does it look like to really care for the holistic parts of a of a person and so um, as we, as human beings, try to at least be a little bit more considerate of one another and all the things that make us who we are, I think mental health has now entered that conversation much more regularly. And then because of that, um, it's created opportunities for these teams and these leagues to say, you know what, like if, if we're going to have a, a, a team dietitian and we're going to have an athletic trainer, we're going to have a team doctor. Um, having this other person in the mix just makes sense now. And and it always made sense, but um, prior, I think it just was not seen as a priority and people just didn't want to talk about it. And now that more folks do, it makes it so much easier um, to think about what that could look like, which could look like totally different for every single team, different leagues. But um, the fact that now it's much more part of the conversation, I definitely feel like that has changed um, in a great way um, in the time that I've been doing this for sure. Kind of switching gears a little bit as
1: I'm trying to ensure that our participants are getting kind of those like golden nuggets. I was listening to one of your podcasts that you, cre- that you created during uh, probably the height of the pandemic. And uh, though we're not in the middle of a pandemic, I think those um, three things that you shared for individuals to kind of um, have a sense of balance I think they're just as important today. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners those three things. I'm not sure if you know the specific podcast that I'm referring to, um, but you talked about kind of three tips um, about how to um,
2: deal with, with the changes. And I think they're relevant even today. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, for folks, and I, I don't remember specifically what I said because I feel like I, I'm always ranting about this because I nerd out about it, but um,
0: I think You're always <laughs> dripping, dripping gold, right? So, <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm just dropping nuggets all the time. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) Some people drop likes, you drop nuggets.
2: (laughs) But I can imagine that I'm still probably going to refer back to what I always say. So I'm sure I will end up saying those same three to some capacity. But being able to recognize that, you know, if you're trying to create balance in in your life, it, it really does sort of. Um, come down to being able to know like how you're, 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 managing, you know, your, your, your skills, your coping skills. And what does that look like? Knowing if, if those exist for you, which means having to do a little bit of self work on like, what do you like? What do you not like? What, what, who, ma- what makes you who you are? Um, the, in the environment that you're in. So that includes people and actual spaces. What does it look like, you know, particularly coming off of a pandemic? Um, or in some ways, I guess we're still in it, but, you know, being able to think about, um, creating spaces for yourself um, to be able to have an outlet of, of, a, of, a, of a place that's yours, that feels serene, that feels like it contributes to your mental health and your well-being. Um, and then I think, obviously, which maybe feels like the much more pronounced and stated way and maybe a little bias is like creating that space for you to have somebody like a clinician in your life um, who you can seek support from and, and really being able to then balance all of those things out with with the everyday things that we all have as, you know, as spouses or, or parents or you know, our, our, our work roles. Um, if you can find ways to, to better manage those things, it makes it much easier to know that you may not be at your optimum place of mental health, but you've given yourself a, a better chance um, of, of figuring out when something's wrong and then doing something about it.
1: And one of the other things that you talked about in that podcast was about um, routine and connectivity. Um, especially because all of our routines have changed and, um, maybe you're not beholden to getting up at a certain time, but creating that sense of routine. And I think that adds to that balance piece. Um, because if you're just doing whatever, whenever it throws off your rhythm and that connectivity piece, because so, mo- so many of us, um, and it actually ties into one of the, um, pieces that we did with another, uh, speaker where they, they talked about, um, during the pandemic, individuals who didn't have that sense of connectivity, how it impacted them. So individuals who were married at least had a spouse at home. So there was another person that they could connect with. So I think, you know, when you're thinking about people who are stressed, often are withdrawn and there isn't that connection. Um, So it could be something for a practitioner if you see people starting to withdraw and not connecting.
2: Yep, absolutely. And and you bring up a good point from um, the idea, too, of, of having those routines, the way we're wired as human beings, our brains, we, we are creatures of habit. I know it's like a, a catchphrase people throw out, but we really are. And so um, the way in which you set yourself up, um, and we tell this to, to athletes all the time, right, like you play how you practice. And so it's the same thing with our, our mental health, right? If you continuously practice the habit um, of wellness, of taking care of yourself, of building routines that, that contribute to your, your mental health. Um, eventually that becomes your norm and it's not just a practice, it's who you are. And so I think being able to figure out what those routines can be, um, is super helpful because it allows us at the, at the core mentally, we're lazy, like our brain uses schemas and patterns and that sort of thing to, to make it all happen as much as we probably all feel like we're like churning out and cranking out all this stuff at the end of the day, when I go home, I'm like, did I really accomplish anything today? And it's usually because my day might feel very routine, but I've actually probably done a lot. Um, but, it, but because of having that structure or having a known pattern or a set time for certain things, I don't have to give as much thought or energy um, to making it happen. And our brain loves that. It makes it feel great. Um, and so I think being able to, to figure out what that looks like for your wellness is a, is a key um, for yourself.
0: One of the things I kind of wanted to talk about, you hear it all the time when people talk about mental health and mental wellness, is this idea of, right, we need to be proactive. If we're not being proactive, you know, we're missing the boat. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, when you start talking about actually trying to help people around mental health and wellness, what does proactive look like to you? Yeah,
2: I think that looks different maybe in, in from an individual basis, you know, for, again, for an athlete, like, especially in the collegiate space, proactivity looks like what that maybe department is doing. Um, to say athletic department is doing to say that mental health is a priority, which could include general programming and outreach, um, which is, which should be, I think, core tenets of an athletics department's values. Um, and that includes, again, staff support, um, having a, a sports psychology and counseling area if that's possible, um, but just being able to prioritize it above all else, even just during certain times of year, because like we talked about earlier in the collegiate space, these folks are still college students, so they still have midterms and finals. They still are away from home, many of them. Um, they have family things going on back at home. And so to be proactive, um, you know, an athletics department, surely thinking about what this looks like by having, you know, designated days off, which I know is like the scariest thing to put out there for athletics departments. No one ever wants to offer anyone a day off, and, uh, which is wild to me. But you know, I think it's being able to recognize that those are are needed things every now and then and, and pleasant surprises for athletes. A lot of times they don't realize how much they need that until they get that day where randomly coach is like, you know, we're not practicing today. Like let's just not, you know, and, and, and so and not be so fearful about what's that going to do in the game this weekend when in actuality it, might, it probably will enhance performance in the game because they actually got gave their brain a second to stretch and breathe for a minute. Um, I think in the pro space, it's kind of similar, like obviously being able to make room um for mental health being a priority, there's not as much sort of outreach and programming that happens in the pro space. It really is about maybe more so team culture um and having someone that prioritizes, you know, what that looks like. Um I've had a, a wonderful experience this past regular season working with the Golden State Warriors who has like a wonderful culture um of being able to think about mental health as a priority. Um and, and letting players identify what that looks like individually. And so I think that's part of it too. It's it's being able to know here's the resource and then letting folks figure out and discover what that is for themselves and what do they need from a mental health perspective to show up as their, their best self. But that only comes with the proactive part of staff and coaches and um, an organization saying like, this is a priority for us. And so we want to be able to help you figure out what do you need um, to show up as your best self. So looks a little different, but again, the whole idea is not being afraid to be on the front end of educating, of putting it out there, of saying, you know, this is a priority to us so that athletes see that and then they respond accordingly and much more freely um, to what's being offered.
0: And what would you tell somebody, say, just as an individual athlete development specialist practitioner, how could I be proactive if I'm really trying to get into my athlete's heads about that's probably the wrong turn of phrase here. But if I'm trying to engage my athletes around a conversation around athlete de- or around mental health and wellness, how can I be more proactive as an individual practitioner?
2: I think being able to, you know, initiate those conversations. So don't wait until it's like, you know, it's May right now and Mental Health Awareness Month and, you know, those sort of things, like don't wait until that sort of moment to, to say like, now this is important because it's, it, it almost feels like sort of an afterthought, even though you're trying to be proactive, it feels like an afterthought, because it feels maybe more appropriate to you to talk about it during a time when everybody else is, it's being able to, you know, on a, a random day, when something happens, we got so much going on in the world right now, you know, being able to sort of even just connect with somebody separate from maybe how uh, mental health is affecting them in sport, but just like, how is your mental health as a whole, right, with, there's all these things going on around us. We've spent the last two years in the pandemic. And, and so, being able to check in with people on um, what I like to call more of like the experiential factors of life, like the things separate from our day to day, which just includes social and environmental things um, that could also affect how we show up every day and affect our mood and affect our happiness. Um, and so, being able to, you know, as a, as a practitioner, um, who's working with athletes to, to utilize the person that you are to connect with the person that they are. And, and that makes it much more simple than trying to get all in your head about using the right terms and then that sort of thing. It's really checking in on another human being.
0: That's probably the best way to describe it, right? Just be a good person. Try your best to create a connection, make it genuine. And I think a lot of our practitioners understand that if you're going to do this job well, you have to be able to build trust. But I think that's a great point. It's Don't be worried about having some. I'm going to have a formal conversation with you about mental wellness, and you don't do that. Yeah, everyone. Exactly. You're freaking me out, dude. (laughs) That
2: would freak freak me out, and I do this all day. So, wondering why are you talking like this? You know. So, I think being able to to make it normal.
0: (laughs) That's a great point.
1: I just wanted to to add. you, You made mention of you know kind of what's going on in the world today. Um, and, and trying to be proactive as well as reactive as, as individuals that are in this space that are dealing with athletes day in and day out. When the real world happens, it happens to all of us, even if we're not directly involved. As we started this conversation prior to the podcast officially starting, we were talking about some of the unfortunate things that are taking place. So I I say all that to say when things happen, bad things happen, do you suggest, do you encourage, what are your thoughts on having those conversations um, with your athletes? Because it's in the air, um, you know, and, and so when bad things happen, what are your recommendations with regards to um, having conversations with your athletes, whether they're high school student athletes, uh, collegiate student athletes or professional?
2: Yeah, I, I think so similar to what we were just talking about, there still has to be a proactive approach to stuff like that. I know it, it's difficult for people. It's scary. Um, we're all processing our own emotions about the things that are going on. And so that can be really hard to know where to start. Um, but I think to an extent of saying that you have taken on a role to work with athletes, you too have now put yourself sort of in a um, you know, a, a human servant role. And that does then mean taking a little bit of the responsibility to say, you know what? There's these things going on and I know how I'm feeling. So I can only imagine that this other person could be feeling like this as well. And so I think there, there has to be some willingness to, to jump in and, and allow yourself to say, I, I may not have all the answers as far as like, From a clinical perspective of like how you should be feeling and what this looks like and how to maybe you know lift your mood about something I don't know that you should even worry about that I think it's more so being able to um, offer a place of acknowledgement Um, that's one of the biggest things that as a clinician working in a collegiate space um, and I'm I'm sure I, I probably and, and viewed sometimes as a rebel rouser in our department, but I'm always sort of like, you know, this thing has happened. We need to say something like the, you know, our athletics director should say something or, or our health and wellness person should say something. Um, even if that's just an email to student athletes acknowledging um, that this thing has happened. Yes. We noticed none of us have the answers. Cause if, if we did, these things wouldn't be happening. And so it's being able to, um, offer space for them to process, you know, anything that's going on. And like a, a great example for me that comes to mind is um, recognizing that, you know, two years ago um, when the George Floyd murder happened, that was like a huge sort of uh, a reckoning for lots of people. And so what I remember most about that time as the mental health clinicians for our department was getting text and calls from from athletes saying like, well, you know, well what are we gonna do? And and by we, my, my question was always like, Well who's we? Like we as in you and I working together on how you're feeling about this. Um but the big picture was that they actually meant like we as in a, a department, we as in a university, um and as a collective sort of of people using our voices about how we feel about it. And so um I took it as an as an obligation to then reach out to our administration and say like our students are wondering like what's happening. Our athletes want to know um, how can they leverage the the influence that they have to speak out. And and I think that often doesn't um, get categorized as being like mental health like, but it is, you know, advocacy and activism are also forms of, of maintaining your mental health. And so uh, we saw, you know, sort of a, a revolution in our athletics department by allowing space for student athletes to be able to speak up simply because we made the choice to finally speak up ourselves, because then that gave them, it almost gave them permission, I guess, in a way for them to feel like, okay, my athletic department, you know, they care about people, they care about me. Um, So now I feel like I can use my voice to speak up. And so many of them got involved nationally, locally. Um, And then our department also made a lot of changes that needed to happen um to better us in the long run and so 2 years later i think folks mental health um is much better prioritized when things like what we have going on right now are happening because people know that you know the human nature in all of us um is affected by this stuff and we can't we just can't ignore it so um i definitely think you know there's a there's an obligation there to be proactive those conversations have to happen um, they're not always fun. They're not always pretty. You don't always have the right words to say, um, but ignoring it or sort of, you know, hoping that like athletes will figure it out on their own. Um, that, that usually just doesn't happen. Um, and, and the collegiate space is, looks, I know, a lot different. I know there's a lot of, you know, the, the politics of higher education and, and all that stuff, too, and speaking out um, under what looks like a brand and that sort of thing versus in the pro space like we talked about earlier, people are more individualistic and they can say what they want to say. And it's not seen as a, a representation of maybe the team that they're a part of. We've, we've seen that this week as well from players and coaches um, speaking out and being very vocal about how they feel personally about things going on. And, and that's not affecting what people think of the brand of those organizations. So it's a it's a tightrope. I, I do get that, but we can't ignore this stuff and think that it's not affecting people's mental health for sure.
0: I think the, uh, the last thing I was hoping to discuss with you, uh, Dr. Poole, is uh, obviously it's not the most fun thing to talk about, but obviously, recently, you know, particularly in the NCAA, there's been a rash of, of student athlete suicides. Questions I wanted to ask you is what do you think is driving this sort of current um, issue? And then what can we as athlete development specialists be more aware of when it comes to preventing suicides? And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that and maybe have a quick conversation around. Obviously, a a pretty sensitive topic.
2: Yeah, we we definitely have seen you know um, in the last just in the last few months, or for us, everything's in semesters. But this semester, in particular, um, you know, at least four to five major uh, suicide um, completions by athletes, um, all female. Though of the ones that have kind of made you know national news for sure, Um, and I'm sure there's others that we we all maybe don't even know about, Um, and and definitely. For in the collegiate space that one, uh, the most recent um, hit home for us right in Baton Rouge, Louisiana um, at Southern University, a cheerleader committed suicide. And uh, that dynamic of that happening at the, the end of the semester after the, the prior four that have happened across the country um, obviously created lots of conversation of what that looks like and, and and has pushed many of us as clinicians to think about what is going on, like you said, and, and what's changing. Um, I think for Many of the reasons we've already talked about throughout our time together today, you know, social media being a huge sort of component of like emotional fragility in the sense of um, everything is about our connection to what people think of us on social media, and so um, as the layers change around what friendship is and what what relationships are supposed to be and uh, what success looks like, it's all being defined by like snapshots of other people's lives that they're. Curating um, which we all do that's what social media kind of is it's a snapshot of of the bigger picture um, but then generationally what we're seeing and like we talked about earlier that eighteen to twenty five age group where the emergence of many mental health concerns come up um, if they don't have someone in their in their life who's able to pick up on the small cues like we've talked about or have those proactive conversations, it can be really difficult I think for them to process what they're feeling um, and then they don't have the emotional vocabulary always. Um, Many of us don't have it sometimes when we really need it. And so I think being able to see that happen in such a a broad way and and what we saw in the trend with these most recent athletes where many of them were not just, you know, great elite athletes, but like were doing really, really positive and progressive things in their like personal lives. Like one um, had a softball player, I think had just gotten a major award um, by, you know, the association to be able to say, um, like, this is how great you are on and off the field. And so all the things that when an, a young athlete starts out in youth sports, you know, they're taught to, to be the best, to persevere, but to have good character and, and all these things. And like, for all of these athletes that we're talking about or using as examples, they all seem to have had that. Um, and, and so it makes you wonder what is that gap, like I said, in, in emotionality or expressing of that that we're missing um as the people who are tasked most of the time to care with them, not just as clinicians, but all of us who are sports professionals or athletic professionals, um, who are kind of the gap fillers to catch that. Um, especially in the collegiate space, they're adults, but you know, they, they they we have a responsibility. I think sometimes to make sure that we're checking in on them, uh, because we've asked their parents to entrust them with us at our universities, um, in order to be able to come and do this thing for us to win for us. And so, um, I think some of the things that have made it hard for our professionals to know what to say and and what to do is because there there feels like this dissonance between who these folks are and who they've been. Um, And then them doing something like that, like, you know, completing a suicide. And so um, it it, one of the things I always point out to folks is uh, because people, I think, start the questioning of like, what did I miss or what could I have done to change the outcome if they somehow had a connection to that person or engaged with that person? But in most cases, uh, what often doesn't get talked about with suicide completion is that uh, most people, by the time, you know, someone would be engaging with them within 24 to 48 hours of them attempting um, their suicide, they've made their decision that they want to do that. And so they will present probably much happier than you've ever seen them um, because they've they've sort of decided on, on what their plan of action is and has found what we would say maybe found peace with it. Um, and so it throws off the people in their life. And that's why we often hear the stories from the parents and the friends around them saying, I just talked to her that morning or I just you know, connected with them or they just played in the best game of their of their career, you know, two days ago. Um, and it's usually just because we there. there's the missed sort of uh, complete thought of, of what their plan is. And so I know that makes it more complicated, I think, and probably for some, in some ways scarier for people to think about how do you influence that? How do you help? Um, but in part, it's being able to do the collective of of all the things we've talked about today by being proactive, by educating. Um, by creating spaces for emotions to be able to be expressed freely and that's you know with parents that's with staff that's coaches that's everybody involved um, so that it creates uh, a culture and a community for athletes to to get to you know what for them maybe feels like their lowest points um, to turn that around and I think that um, that takes a lot of work too and a lot of patience and There's a lot of repeated cycles in that, and so recognizing that you know suicidality is is a is a ongoing. It's a process. It's not just like like a completion of a suicide is an event, but suicidality, suicidal ideation, um, that's an ongoing thing. That that's something that people who have other mental health disorders that's a symptom of, and so it's even recognizing that part of it. Like someone can have PTSD as their main diagnosis because they you know are we have we have veteran athletes that are on some of our teams like who've served and so recognizing that a symptom of that could also be suicidal ideation because of the things that they've seen and so I think just helping broaden the scope of like people identifying uh mental health symptoms and 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 those sort of things helps on the front end to you know decrease the fear in all of us who have to you know try to look for these things but also at the same time uh, create a space where athletes know that people are looking out for these things for them?
0: Well, I think you, you, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack on that. And I think that, you know, the thing that struck me is that there's a lot of, I think, literature that sort of talks about that athletes tend to be more prone to suicide ideation than, than a, a, the general population, which then speaks to exactly what you just said. Well, then it, the impetus to be proactive is absolutely critical. Uh, otherwise, you're going to miss the boat. And then I think the other thing that you said that really stuck with me is this idea of Hey, go create the genuine connection to the human being. And that's going to allow you to have those more meaningful conversations, to be more engaged, to identify maybe where things are going off the, off the rails. And, and like you said, what you, that, that situation you just described where an athlete presents like, hey, I'm, I'm phenomenal, uh, and then you know, leads to, to taking their own life. That's a, that is a super scary scenario. And it sounds like the only way to really combat that is to really be on the front foot uh, in order to really get ahead of it.
2: Be on, be on the front foot for sure and definitely um, allow, you know, space for the fact that we we just we've seen this happen, you know, recently and 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 for a long time so to know that it, it's not you um that created that opportunity for something like that to happen as the professional maybe in the space thinking like oh a, a lack of skill on your part or or that sort of thing. I think that kind of then deters people from You know, the next go round of of how to be proactive because they're worried that like, well, this person was so involved in their life and they they should have known all these things and they still missed it. And, And so I think, you know, again, being on the front foot just means not allowing um What circumstances maybe have happened and that we've seen uh, keep you from making the attempt. And I I think that that's uh, a fear. And we all have that, even for me as somebody who does this every day. I I never want to feel like I let something fall through the cracks or missed a moment or missed a a phrase that I should have. But I also can't then rely on the one time maybe that I did around something else, maybe not with this same topic, be the reason that I I don't even look for it because I'm too afraid um, the next time. And so. Yeah, I think it's 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 a it's a sensitive issue for a lot of people. It's a scary issue. Um, We're definitely seeing you know trends for this this age group and this population um, in a way that we've never seen before. Um, And but we've also lived through two years recently that we've never seen before. And I think some of that influence that again we could talk about in a whole different way. I think also is affecting this and. There just hasn't been research yet done on on what that influence also has looked like for athletes to maintain their high level of performance in a world that has looked nothing like what sports has looked like for them ever in their lives, whether you're collegiate pro athlete youth sports, sports stopped for a little bit too like that's something that doesn't happen and and so I think being able to know we're all like picking up the pieces and I think this is some of the residuals of us picking up the pieces and and not being yet back at full steam.
0: And I think that may be a great place to wrap up. I think we've been going here for nearly an hour. So with that, um, again, I wanna say thank you on behalf of PADS and our global partners to uh, Dr. Lakeitha Poole. Thank you again for for being on the, uh, on the phone with us today. I appreciate the conversation.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And again, thanks Steph for riding shotgun here as we, we dive into these topics. So again, really appreciate your time. Appreciate your commitment to, to what you're doing. Uh, and, and, and again, I think uh, your perspective is, is really well received in light of the work that you've been doing. So thank you again for your time today.
2: Thank you.